you got your Bibles, your phones, your iPads, go ahead and turn over to 1 Kings chapter 18 there in the Old Testament. And uh, we're going to talk about a very familiar story. And a lot of you, especially if you grew up in Sunday school, you heard this story about Elijah. And you know that he, he was a God's ordinary man who prayed earnestly, and then God did extraordinary things through this, this amazing prophet. Now, what you need to know is the location, and the location is a place called Mount Carmel. Now, let me just tell you a little something about Mount Carmel uh, that's interesting. Mount Carmel today is in Palestine, and it is roughly 1,500 feet high. Now, I'm going to be honest, that's not very impressive, okay? Uh, Last week or two weeks ago, my wife and I uh, were traveling down in the Smokies, and we went out and uh, saw some of the Appalachian Mountains, and, and then last year we had a chance to go to Yellowstone. Uh, we've had a chance to uh, vacation to Colorado. Colorado alone has 50 14-pointers, and that means 14, uh, at least 50 peaks over 14,000 feet. So when I mention Mount Carmel, like 1,500 feet, I mean, wow, that's like a hill, you know. And it doesn't seem very impressive. Well, it's not the mountain. That's not what we're talking about this morning. It's not even the mountaintop experience that Elijah had. It's what happened there. And what happened there is for all of us. What he taught us on that mountain, what God taught all of us, is for all of us. And that's what we're going to get into a little bit this morning. Okay? Um, Elijah, again, is an amazing man. James 5.17 said that he's just like us, that if we're willing to earnestly seek God out and if we're willing to pray and turn everything over to God, then God has in store for you things that you can't even imagine. And that's what we're going to get into this morning in 1 Kings 18. And let me give you a little bit of background and we're going to dive into the text this morning. Uh, Elijah uh, was representing God and the entire nation of Israel the culture had turned evil, and so God knew the only way he's really going to get their attention, and I think all of us are like this, whether we want to admit it or not. When we're drifting from God, you know what gets our attention more than anything else? A crisis in our life. How many agree with that? Raise, raise your hand. Okay. It, I wish it was an, I wish there was another way. I, I just wish maybe over a bowl of cereal I could be like, oh, God, yeah, I've drifted. Usually it's like, Boom. Okay, you're drifting, you're drifting, you're drifting. And what a crisis does is it wakes you up. Like, wait a minute. Oh, this, this is what matters. So here was the crisis. He realized that their bread and butter was just like here. It's cows, it's, it's, it's livestock, it's, it's agriculture. So he thought, okay, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm just going to turn off the rain for a couple of years and let's just see if their idols are going to help them in this crisis. And so Elijah shares this very popular message. Hey, it's not going to rain until I come back and represent God and tell you it's going to rain. And two and a half years go by, no rain. Now imagine just in our lives right now if it didn't rain for two and a half years. Just imagine. Imagine how that would affect the county fair. Imagine how it would affect everything, Okay. So you can only imagine now the crisis has escalated to a point they are desperate. So here's what Elijah does. Through God, he says, I'll tell you what. Why don't you, and he's crying out to the king, why don't you cry out to all of your prophets, these prophets of Baal, send them all to Mount Carmel, 
and I'll meet you there. And they can pray, and they can do whatever they want to their gods and their idols, and let's see if they can make it rain, all right? Let's just see what happens. And, and here's what happens. It's, a, it's an amazing scene, if you think about it. He gets there. Here's these prophets of Baal, and he says, okay, here's the deal. You pray for it to rain, but let's start with this little crowd breaker. Let's, let's build this. Let's lay a bunch of wood down. And you cry out to your gods and idols, and you just see if you can start a fire, basically. Let's just start with that. A good little party favor. Let's, let's get the fire going. And so they start chanting and chanting. And one of their customs was they would cut themselves, and they would bleed all over themselves. And, and he, he is great. Elijah is taunting them. Now, I'm going to show my age a little bit. It reminds me of Muhammad Ali. Do you guys even know who that is? Okay. So Muhammad Ali, one of the things that he used to do when he was in his prime is he loved to taunt his opponent. Uh, one of my favorite stories was George Foreman in that classic fight. Foreman said, I hit him with thunder and I hit him with lightning round after round. And about the fifth round, I got as close as I could and Muhammad Ali got in my ear and he whispered, is that all you got, George? And Foreman said, that's about it. You know, I, I got nothing else. And honestly, that's Elijah. He's like, is, seriously, is this all you got? I mean, you're, you're cr- it's embarrassing. I mean, no fire, you're bleeding. I mean, look at this guy. He's so ugly and nothing's happening. I mean, he is just taunting and taunting. And then after they're just laying there exhausted, man, just the power of God came through Elijah, and he said, all right, you back off. And I'm telling you now, you just douse all of this wood in water. I mean, you just saturate it, and you just keep doing that. And they went through this process two, three times, and then I love it. He just says, okay, now you're going to learn who God really is. Now, follow with me in the scriptures in 1 Kings 18, starting in verse 30. It says, then Elijah said, tell all the people, come here to me. And they came to him. He repaired the altar of the Lord, which has been then torn down. He took 12 stones, each of them each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, your name shall be Israel. And with the stones he built an altar. In the name of the Lord, he dug a trench around this large enough. And then he put down the wood. And then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour that offering on the wood. Do it again, he said. Do it again. Do it a third time, he ordered. Verse 36. And at the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and he prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and I am your servant. And I've done these things by your command. Now look at verse 39. When all of the people saw this, they fell and they cried, The Lord is God. The Lord, He is God. Now think about how powerful that moment was. No rain for two and a half years. They cry out to their gods. And what does God do? The very first thing, He sends the fire. He's like, you haven't seen anything yet. And he sends this fire, and it says it kills all the prophets of Baal. I think he's got their attention right now. And do you notice what he wants them to know? You belong to God. 
You belong to God. You don't belong to all these other idols. You don't need to be pursuing all these other distractions in your life. You belong to God. God is in control. Isn't that what every crisis in our life teaches us? Isn't it? We're not in control. I guarantee some of you this week have had something happen to you, and that's what you're coming to understand. You're not in control. Every parent and every grandparent in this room, you know how hard it is when you see your kids and your grandkids make really bad decisions. And you know what aches the most deep in our hearts? We, what? Are not in control. We're not in control. And that is the lesson that Elijah desperately wants them to learn. You need to return to God. Don't pursue these idols. The Ten Commandments, the very first one, you shall have no other gods before me. John Ortberg, a great minister and author, said this, the problem with idols from a biblical perspective is not simply that they get God's name wrong, it's that they get God's character wrong. Idols from a biblical perspective offer power, but they do not demand what the Lord requires to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. You see, here's the whole thing about idols and idol worship is eventually it's self-centered. And I love what Orberg says, God never intended for us to be self-centered. He intended us to turn our lives over to him, let him take control of our lives, and then out of that, we begin what? Caring for others because we're not focused on ourselves. That's the way God always intended it to be. Um, I read this the other day. It just cracked me up about this, uh, this young man, and um, he had fallen in love with this gal, and, and the dad is watching the, his daughter fall in love, which is a really painful thing to go through. So anyway, his daughter's falling in love, and he realizes they're, they're probably going to get married. So I thought, I'm going to cut this thing off short and, uh, before it gets awkward. And so he had just the right time. And he said, son, it seems like uh, you're pretty fond of my daughter. He goes, oh, I, man, I love your daughter. He goes, so I'm assuming down the road you're going to try to marry my daughter. He goes, yeah, sir, I'm glad we're having this conversation because I'd scheduled another time to do this. But, yeah, let's go ahead and talk it out. You know, so anyway... He goes, yeah, okay, I, I kind of assume that. So let me, as a dad, let me ask a few basic questions. Let's start with the engagement ring. Do you, do you have money for the engagement Oh, no, no. I don't, I don't have a job, but I just trust God. Just trust God. He goes, interesting. Okay, so you don't have money for a ring, but down the road, do you have a job in mind that you're going to provide security for my daughter? Maybe, I don't know, an apartment, a home? And he goes, oh, no, no. I don't have a job, don't have a job in the future. I just want to trust God. Well, um, okay, but let's get past all of that. You don't have a job. You don't have a plan. Uh, down the road, do you ever want to have children? Because we'd love grandchildren. You know, just not going to lie. We love grand. Way down the road. How, what do you think about that? And he goes, oh, I don't want to think about advanced plans. I just want to trust God. He said, okay, okay, that's interesting. And uh, so he leaves. And at dinner, his wife said, so how'd the discussion go? He goes, well, good news, bad news. Well, what's, what's the bad news? Well, he doesn't, he doesn't have a job, and he doesn't have a plan. She goes, what's the good news? Well, he thinks I'm God. Yeah. Now, I want you to think about in life how 
false gods in our life that we pursue. It could be relationships. It could be a job. Think of all the countless things that are distractive in our life, the things that we truly trust, because the things that we truly trust, those are the gods in our life. It's that easy. You want to know what somebody really loves? It's really not that hard. You get somebody's day timer, and you get their checkbook, and you can tell exactly what somebody's priorities are. It's what are they investing their time in, and what are they investing their money in? So you need to step back, all of us do, and we need to ask ourselves, is God really one God? We've been talking about, there's a series that we're in called uh, Hills We Die On. This is a hill the church dies on. We believe with all our heart there is one God. There is one God. And let me tell you, that's a life changer. Because when you go through a crisis, what are you going to turn to? When you go through a crisis, your hobbies and the things that we pursue, the distractions, they get us nowhere. But God will draw us in. 1 Corinthians 8, 4 says this, So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. So this morning, I just want to say from the text that we just looked at, what are two undeniable truths about the characteristics of this one God? And here's the first one. God is with us. Now, I want you to think how important that is for your life. He's with us. It's interesting. This week, I was talking to Sean Green, and and we were talking about this scripture and uh, the whole idea of knowing God and that God actually wants to be with us. He said, hey, it's interesting If you've ever read Psalms 46, it gives a clear picture of the relationship that God wants with us. And so I started going through Psalms 46, which is one of my favorite psalms. And here's what I love about it. There's this phrase that's repeated throughout Psalms 46. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And what they would do in their congregations is they would say that over and over For example, I would say the Lord Almighty is with us, and then the congregation would repeat, Jacob, the God of Jacob is our fortress. Now, here's why that is so important. The God Almighty means we know that God is in control, and we know that God is the creator of all. He is all-powerful. He is God, and we worship him. We lay down our lives before him. We know that he is almighty. But then when he says the God of Jacob, you know what he's saying? God wants a personal relationship with us, that the creator of the universe actually knows your name, knows the hairs on your head, knows everything about you, and actually wants a relationship with you, wants a relationship with me. That means everything. When Jesus came into this world, when one God sent his one son, his name was Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? Anybody? God is with us. Now think about the very fact that God wants to be with you. Uh, Got a great book I want to recommend, and it's called Gods at War by Kyle Eidelman. I want you to listen to this quote. What you are searching for, what you're chasing after, reveals the God that is winning the war of your heart. One of the things that Eidelman says, and I think he's right, is we understand idol worship, and most of us say, I don't have that ad. I don't have that as a problem. 
I mean, I don't have little wooden images made of wood or stone all around my house. I'm not bowing down to items. So this whole thing about idol worship, that does not apply to me. But I want you to think again, what is an idol? It is anything that distracts you and derails you from the relationship that God wants with you. And all of us have areas of our life that we're like, oh, my land, I really am not as close to God as I should be. So there are four questions. Quickly, I'm going to ask all of you to ask yourselves. Like, even when you get home, ask yourself these questions, and I think they identify, are you struggling in this relationship, this passionate relationship that we should have with God? Here's the first one. What are you worried about? I'm not going to have you raise your hand, but my guess is some of you have a lot of worry right now in your life. I love what Rick Warren said, worry is the warning light that shows I have stopped looking to God to meet my needs. You know, you can't worry and worship at the same time. But what are you worried about? Because your worry may actually be an idol. You're more focused on what you're worried about than the God who can what? Help you with what you're worried about. Here's another question. Where do you go when you're hurt or you're stressed? Uh, there's a survey by Barna, and it is heart-wrenching about what's actually going on in the church behind the scenes after Sunday. And you know what's growing more than anything else, derailing people from their relationship with God, is pornography. Think of all the people when they're stressed, that's what they turn to. And alcohol abuse, they have found out that there's no difference when they look at people within the church and people that don't know Christ at all. And the only reason I share those two things are there are so many destructive things in our life that simply say when you're stressed in, when you're stressed out, this is how you get rid of the stress. And it doesn't work. God says, I'm God. And even when you're stressed, turn to me. And then here's a big one. What makes you mad? Believe it or not, that identifies where you're at in your relationship with God, what makes you mad. I'm going to share with you a quick story, and you're not going to believe in church. I'm using this guy's name, Bobby Knight. Anybody heard of that guy, Bobby Knight? Okay. But Bobby Knight, I was reading a while back, and I'm almost sure it was Season of the Brink that I was reading this. And he, he did. He shared this, this story, and I thought, he's right about this. They were asking him about religion, and Bobby Knight laughed, and he said, let me tell you a story. He said, one day, or one evening, SMU, which is Southern Methodist, was playing TCU, which is Texas Christian. And at the very end of the game, with the game on the line, a kid from uh, Southern Methodist at the free throw line made a clutch free throw and won. After the game, they interviewed him and said, I just prayed God would let Southern Methodist win, and God let us win. And so Knight said, do you really think God wanted the Methodists to win more than TCU? What was that kid praying? I think God's got bigger issues. Now, here's the problem. I know none of you have this issue. When I thought about what has pushed me almost to the point of rage in my life, I would love to tell you it's about people who are unjust to, to believers. Or I would love to tell you that I get enraged about the things that make God mad. You know what I get mad about? when the Cardinals lose two out of three to the Cubs, or, you know, when IU loses to Kentucky. Now, I know none of you are that immature, 
I know that. But seriously, what is it you get mad about? Let's throw out uh, driving on 37 or I-69. Anybody love that experience? Yeah. How many times have you drove and, th and you've said to yourself, Jesus, thank you so much that I live? No. What? And you just get so worked up. You ever get home and go, why am I so mad about that? But I'm not mad about people that are just completely living their lives apart from God. Why is it that I ache about things that I know God doesn't ache about, that doesn't hurt about? So I think a good indicator is what are you mad about? And then the fourth question is what gives you joy? Not happiness, not short term. I mean, what really gives you joy? You know, people that are far from God and they look into the church, do you know one of their number one complaints about the church do they look at the church and go, you know what I love about people in church? They are so happy. Is that what they say? What do they say? You want to know what they say? I, I always share this. Ask a waitress who works on Sunday morning what they say about Christians. Do they see joy? Uh-uh. Too many times they see Christians fighting with one another, always angry at other people. They're going, wow, is that what it's all about? I mean, they should see the joy in our lives, that we are so excited about our relationship in Jesus Christ. Those are questions that cut to the chase because I love the fact that God loves me so much that he wants to be with me. It's not about religion. It truly is about relationship. He doesn't want religion. Do you know the word religion is only, as far as I know, in the Bible one time, and it's in the book of James, and you know what it says true religion is? It's not a bunch of rules. You know what true religion is? It's giving to the widows, giving to the orphans, and it says, and never getting polluted by the world. It's pursuing God with all that you have. God wants, desires a relationship with us. And I want to just close with this about an undeniable characteristic of God. This one God is he loves us. I want you to look at Ephesians chapter 4, and uh, I'm going to start in verse 3, and then I'd like us to read verses 4 through 6 together. Verse 3 says this, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, let's read verses 4 through 6 together. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. What did you get that? One. One God. One Son. One baptism. Why? Because he wants all of us to come together and realize God loves us. Everybody here today know that. You're loved relationships don't define who you are. Your job doesn't define who you are. God loves you. That defines who you are. That should change everything in your life. You are truly loved. In just a moment or so, I'm going to have the prayer team come up, and I just want to share this last thing about the love of God and what that love of God really means. Um, I've had the privilege uh, and the honor of being a part of both of my daughter's uh, 
weddings. So I'm, I'm a little fond of daughters and weddings, and, and uh, you're absolutely broke financially, but it's a great experience, um, and it's, it's, it's an amazing thing. And over the years, I can't even tell you how many weddings that I've been a part of, and I've shared with you before that um, very seldom do I ever watch the bride when she comes down. I watch the groom watch the bride. It's the best ticket in the house. I'm just watching, the, you know, uh, these stud muffins just ball like a baby, and they're just, and the bride's coming. It's just, it's, it's one of the, the coolest experiences. But one of my favorite guys in the world, a minister and an author, his name is Francis Chan. And Francis Chan, uh, he shared this, this story about a, a wedding that he said was the most impactful wedding that he had ever conducted, very simple wedding. And he started off by saying something, I think this is true, is I want you to think about the people in your life that inspire you and they don't even know it. Seriously, I want you to think about people in your life that inspire you and they don't know it. So this week, here's your challenge. Let them know they inspire you. Send a card or an email. Let that person know. And in his church, uh, he said there was a woman and her name was uh, Jean Pelfrey. And he loved her because her whole life was just hard. She'd been through just abuse and so much in her life. Um, when they had a daughter, her first husband uh, left, left her and the daughter, who is a special needs child. And so she raised this precious little girl, April. And April mentally never grew beyond six years old. And she just assumed that was her life to serve the church, to love April, and then the craziest thing happened. She fell in love. And this guy named Rick just adored her. And Chan said they were giggling before the wedding, and they were talking about their pre-marriage counseling, and she said, I don't know what he sees in me. I mean, I'm old. She said, look how old, when I smile, look at all the wrinkles. And she said he winked, and he goes, oh, honey, they're not wrinkles to me. They look just like dimples. Now, Rick's pretty cool. You know, that's, that's pretty good. And she said, and in the premarriage counseling, I said, now, Rick, I, I don't know why you keep saying I'm beautiful. I know I'm not beautiful, but life is hard. I mean, I'm raising April. I love April, but this will be hard. This, is a be, this will be a life like you've never lived before. And he goes, no, I, I, I cherish living with you. I, I want this life. So Francis Chan said in this ceremony, very simple, and he said uh, they had a best man, and the maid of honor was April. And so April sold the flowers, and he said, it was just, just beautiful. And he said, after he finished the vows, and then he gave the rings, now Francis Chan said, I've been asked by Rick uh, before we close the service to do one more thing. And he pulled out another ring. And he said, hey, April, this is for you. And April just let out the Laura, just he said, you can't imagine how loud she screamed through the flowers and then couldn't wait to run up the stairs. And she wrapped her arms around Rick and she just said, I love you. I love you. I love you. And I think that's the church. We're the bride. I mean, I can't imagine this. He loves us so much. Every one of us, he said, I love you this much. You're the bride. And I think we're just like that little girl, like, you, you can't love me. I and mean, look at all the things in my life. And he's like, no, no, I love you. 
And that's what every one of you need to know. He loves you. The God of the universe loves you. He loves you.